0: This is Competition Law with Professor Caron Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. After an introduction to blockchain in the last episode, Coron continues her conversation with Dr Thibaut Schreppel, exploring the implications
1: of the technology for competition policy and antitrust. And because of that, it is said that it will be nearly impossible, if not impossible, to compete with tech giants because they will see you coming and they will say, wait, we see what they're doing, so let's try to kill them one way or the other. With blockchain, you may solve that issue with Something which looks like a network effect, but which I would like to call the token effect.
0: Here's Coron Bait and Wells. There's a lot of hype these days about blockchain, the technology that gave us Bitcoin, but is now spawning a whole new way of interacting and transacting on the internet. If you missed the last episode, and have a mental block when it comes to blockchain, then hit pause now and head on back to episode 23, where you can hear Dr. Thibaut Schreppel walk me through the nuts and bolts of what some are calling a revolutionary technology, set to fix many of the problems currently besetting the internet. In today's episode, Thibaut is back, this time to chat with us about how blockchain differs from and might actually take on the mighty mega platforms. But he also explains why blockchain could just spell the death of antitrust. I started by asking, Thibaut, why blockchain was attracting such ardent support as potentially the basis for an entirely new economic system.
1: Well, it is said that blockchain might do to transactions what the internet did for information. And if I may draw a distinction... I would say that probably we could agree that the internet modified the way that we share information, but also did modify the information itself. And we now see a lot of fake news and blockchain might do the same thing. It will first for sure, decentralize the way we operate and we interact with one another. But also, the way we transact with one another might change because of blockchain. And I guess that is one of the explanations why they are, this excitement over the technology. And the fact that blockchain deletes the need for a third party, in fact, all of the intermediaries. And that is big, because if you think about it, most of what we do today at some point, is going through a third party. And if blockchain is succeeding in deleting that third party, well, it means that basically everything we do will need to change and to evolve one way or the other.
0: So obviously it creates trust in transactions because it provides great security, and one could contrast that with Perhaps the, you might say the rather chaotically insecure nature of the internet and internet based transactions nowadays. For businesses, surely also there are great efficiency benefits in this type of technology?
1: Yes. When I discuss blockchain with people outside of the legal world, they work on the field of supplying or managing an entire chain of production. And they use technology because they can, in fact, track the products from the actual producer to the supermarket. They can also automatize all the transactions and make sure that um, they all get a fair price and that no one is squeezed at any time in the process of selling the product. So uh, it is one of the main fields right now, the field of supply. At the same
0: time, there is, as I mentioned, a growing industry of naysayers, those who brand this as little more than a cultish Religion. Let's just quickly listen to what one of them has to
1: say. The blockchain data structure is 40 years old. It's a pretty good data structure. It's pretty cool. The Merkle Tree data structure. It is not new, but it is being marketed with a bunch of outlandish miracle promises. And the implication you'll get all of these promises all at the same time. And never mind actual technical limitations or anything. And all the promises that the things branded blockchain are sold with are actually old Bitcoin promises recycled, most of which Bitcoin had basically failed by 2014. Like, Bitcoin is not decentralised anymore. It's got three major miners and one company makes 80% of all the mining chips. Um, It doesn't scale up. It's immutable, which means that there's a bunch of illegal pornography on the blockchain nobody can ever remove. Mm -hmm.
0: So that's a great win. So that is David Gerard, who's the author of the book Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain. And he's raising some real issues there, technical limitations, scalability problems, and problems with eliminating any censorship or government control, which, of course, contrary to what some of the hard blockchain advocates might say is actually a good thing. What's your view on this, Thibaut? Do you think the downside outweighs the upside?
1: Well, I would say definitely not, but that's my personal view. First, let me say that I probably agree with 90% of what he said. You do see a lot of scams on blockchain. Another issue is the issue of scalability, which is a big issue. And the idea here is. The entire process which I described, which is you need transaction, you need to group all those transactions into one block, and then you need to submit the block to all of the nodes, to all of the users, and the block to be validated, and then eventually it will be added to the blockchain. That entire process is getting longer and longer because every time there is a new block added to the blockchain... Because all of the blocks, remember, they do have one hash of the previous block. It creates enormous amounts of data, and it is getting longer and longer. And in fact, the entire process of validating one block on the Bitcoin is taking about 10 minutes now. So 10 minutes is all right if you want to show that you are the owner of one apartment. But if you do want to pay something at a supermarket using the Bitcoin, do you really want the supermarket to have to wait for 10 minutes to be sure that you do have the proper amount of Bitcoin in your wallet? Not necessarily. If we talk about Ethereum, which is the second main public blockchain, the process is taking 15 seconds. But still, if we talk Visa, MasterCard, they process millions of transactions in one or two seconds. So there is a big issue there. That is for sure. And I think that is the biggest issue. And actually the blockchain community is working on that issue and that's the priority. Another issue is the issue of security because blockchain is not centralized. Because of that, you need to be sure that the architecture, the way the blockchain is designed function perfectly. Because in case there is any problem, No one can say, hey, let me take charge of the problem and let me solve the problem. It is impossible to do that. So you want to be sure that the security and the functioning of the blockchain is perfect, which is an issue. And the fourth issue, which is to me is the most interesting, is linked to the idea that maybe even though we are talking about blockchain, which is about decentralization, we will need eventually, and that technology will need centralized governments To some extent, for instance, the Ethereum wants to have billions of users. It implies that the technology works perfectly. And for that purpose, it might be that they want to confer the charge of developing the code to the most competent persons on Earth and not to just the entire community. That idea that to run a decentralized system, you need some centralized governance is quite disturbing, but it is a real issue for the blockchain world.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about the tech giants, who we can never not talk about on this podcast, the major digital platforms. And let's understand how the blockchain model is different to the digital platform model. The first point I think to make logically is that blockchain allows for direct transactions, it eliminates intermediaries. Perhaps just recap for us how it does that.
1: So the idea of a blockchain is that it is distributed. The idea that all of the users store on their computer the entire blockchain, the entire register, and it is decentralized. And here we talk about the power, the idea that no one is in charge of the blockchain. Once again, as far as public blockchain are concerned, because of that, it means that every time there is a transaction or a new piece of information put on the blockchain, other users can see that. So because of that, you do suppress the need for intermediary. And because of that, you reduce the transaction costs by a lot. They get closer to zero, actually. And what you do also is that you give power to the people. I'm sorry, it's such a cliche, but blockchain is very useful in giving people control, for instance, over the data. You can imagine you could store your personal data on your private blockchain and grant access to your data anytime you want. But also you could change your mind and say to the platform, well, all of my data are suddenly not accessible to you anymore. So because of that, tech giants are, I think, very much afraid, but it will definitely, I think, force them to change their business model.
0: Right. So we've talked about transactions being direct, eliminating intermediaries, and based on the consensus of the users of the blockchain rather than having terms and conditions imposed on them, as in the platform world, what about network neutrality or interoperability The fact that in public blockchain, at least, networks are open source, of course, that would differentiate from the platforms, would it not? And it would promote multi-homing.
1: Well, there are some open source platforms. We can think about uh, Linux, which was not such a great success. But so here, I think... It is important to make a distinction between two different things. The first is the blockchain as the ledger, as the register that is used to store the data. and that if we talk about a public blockchain, that is decentralized and that is open. So it means that anyone can use that register and build something on top of it. and that's the second step of the analysis, which is the actual use which is made out of the register, out of the database, which is the blockchain. And you can imagine that one company using a public blockchain, using the open source database, will build and plug a software, an application, which is not open source at all, which is in fact very much proprietary, and they will keep the control over that and say, well, if you want to use our service, then you're going to have to pay or you're going to have to do that and that. So there is distinction to be made with the outside blockchain world, because usually, at least most of the platforms that we know are not open source. But to some extent, in the end, in the way the blockchain is used, we can go back eventually to some of those centralized systems.
0: That distinction between the blockchain as the ledger and the applications that run on top of it is a really important one, I think, when you come to talk about the antitrust implications, which we'll come back to. You also mentioned that in the blockchain world, users have ownership and control of their assets and their data. Of course, we know that's a big difference with the situation in the case of the digital platforms. What about economies of scale and network effects, which we know are so central to the power and influence of the platforms? How do these work in the context of
1: blockchain? So here, I'm going to have to discuss how blockchain will compete eventually, or might compete with uh, tech giants. So uh, very basic economics 101. The idea here is to say, the more people are using one service, one technology, the more useful it becomes. But at the very beginning, it takes time. And because of that, it is said that it will be nearly impossible, if not impossible, to compete with tech giants because they will see you coming and they will say, wait, we see what they're doing, so let's try to kill them one way or the other. With blockchain, you may solve that issue with something which looks like a network effect, but which I would like to call the token effect. And the idea behind that is that with blockchain, you create a true disconnection between the willingness to join the service, to use the service, And the utility of the service. Why is that? Because most of the blockchain, if they do a token, it could be a cryptocurrency, it could be just a token that I give you every time you use the blockchain. They say, and it is called, here's another technical word, it is called a airdrop. They do say at the very beginning, well, if you want to use our blockchain, our service, we will give you certain amounts of token. And in fact, they did that with the Bitcoin. At the very beginning, they gave two Bitcoins to everyone simply willing to take the Bitcoins for free. They say, well, we will give you some tokens. And eventually, because our service is so great, everyone will join the service and suddenly the tokens will be worth something. So you better take them now. They will give them free because in the future, it will be very expensive as the Bitcoin. And because of that... Your willingness to join the blockchain is very high when in fact it has no utility, because otherwise they won't give the token, they won't give the Bitcoin for free. And so what you do see is that at the very beginning, at the introduction on the Internet of those cryptocurrencies, they reach a very high number of users in several days, because at the very beginning, well, it's free. So why not at least take them and eventually you'll see whether or not it is worth something. So if you confront the two, the network effect, which takes time, and the token effect, you may have a situation where one blockchain service might compete with a service based on the network effect, which is outside of the blockchain, very rapidly. And in fact, so rapidly that the service outside of the blockchain, the company, can't do anything about it. So I think that is why it is so important for our competitive analysis. So
0: that sounds very promising in terms of competition for the big platforms, but surely none of this upside would necessarily lead to the conclusion that competition law has or should have no role to play in relation to blockchain, particularly not if it's set to revolutionize many sectors in our economy. So what are the fundamental questions we should be asking about the type of competition law we need in relation to blockchain. You've posed the question that blockchain might mean the death of antitrust as we know it.
1: I think we will need antitrust that exists with all of its forms, but I've described the death of antitrust not because it will become useless suddenly, but because of the technicalities of the blockchain for three reasons, I guess. First, because it might be very hard, if not impossible, to get to know who the person using the blockchain is. That's the first one. The second one, because although, let's say, you find a way to identify someone, can you get to know what is the real purpose and the meaning of the transactions on the blockchain? Because once again, they are encoded into hash and it is impossible or nearly impossible to convert the hash into the original inputs. And the third is, let's say that you do find a way to identify the person, to identify the purpose of the transaction, and you do find that, well, this is a cartel. The question is, what can you do about it? And here you have two main issues. The first is the fact that you can't delete information on the blockchain. So if it happens that that information on the blockchain is anti-competitive, because for instance, it gives all of the future prices of all of the companies in the market, well, you can't do anything about it. You're gonna have to wait for that information to become, in a sense, competitive, to be old and outdated. And the second issue is the issue of a smart contract, which we described in the first episode. And here I refer of transaction being triggered automatically. And if that smart contract is designed in a very simple way, and we do simply say, well, if X happens, I will give you that amount of money, that is all. If that is put on the blockchain, it is impossible to stop it. That smart contract will be triggered automatically the day X is fulfilled. And because of that, of course, if you discuss remedies it is nearly impossible to impose something to be done very quickly, but also over the long run, it is very problematic.
0: So you started out by saying you think our current substantive doctrines in antitrust are likely to have some application, but then, as you've pointed out, there are some potentially significant, if not formidable, issues relating to its enforcement and the remedies that might apply. Before we delve further into those the promise of blockchain for competition really lies in its decentralized nature, the fact that it cuts out intermediaries, or as we call them in the platform world, gateways or bottlenecks. But is it really true to say that blockchain ecosystems are wholly decentralized
1: without intermediaries? Uh, it is partially true. <laughs> That's a very typical legal mm, answer, depends. I guess. <laughs> it depends. Of course, the nature of the technology of blockchain is to be decentralized. There is no question of that. But in fact, and in practice, the way it is used tends to go toward centralized power. And here, let me describe three different groups using the blockchain and making the blockchain what it is. The first are the users. Could be you, could be me. Depending on the consensus, which is the way in which we agree to put information on the blockchain. The fact of holding a large number of tokens, the fact of having big computer power, etc. Cetera, etc., cetera, might give rise to centralized power. Because if I know for a fact that my computer is the most powerful, I will get to validate and to enter all of the information into the blockchain. And therefore, if I control the information in a sense, well, I do have a great deal of power. The second category of users is the miners or the validators, depending on the way the transactions are actually validated. And here, well, those miners, they tend to form big groups, mostly in China. And because of that, they know that they're going to be the one in charge of the mining power. Today, the endpool and BTC.com, for instance, control only them two. Uh, 99% of the total mining power on the Bitcoin. That is huge, but it used to be more than 40% six months ago. And the third categories are the developers, which are rarely talked about. If we discuss Bitcoin, if we discuss Ethereum, behind those blockchains, you have two foundations and they are in charge of developing the code. And they have some mechanisms in which they can probe the miners about technical changes, for instance. But you can imagine also that it could implement one mechanism on the blockchain and say, well, we're going to introduce a mechanism so you can do that and that more easily. And that and that might be abuse of dominance, it might be collusion. So because of that, to say, well, blockchain is decentralized, therefore, abuse of dominance is by definition impossible. It's not true. And collusion is by definition impossible because you can't coordinate anything on the blockchain because no one is in charge of the blockchain. Well, it's not true as well.
0: So it turns out blockchain may not deliver us the marketopia that some are promising. What's for sure is that for competition authorities, Already with their plates full of the power and practices of mega digital platforms, it poses a brand new set of challenges. Next on Competition Law, I'm really excited to be able to share with you a discussion that Thibault and I had recently with Glenn Wheel, political economist and social technologist. And as many of you may know, co-author of the highly acclaimed and controversial book, Radical Markets uprooting capitalism and democracy for a just society. Glenn shares with us some of his radical thinking for fixing the dystopia he sees not just in our markets, but in our politics. And we quiz him on where he thinks blockchain might fit into the picture. Until then, you can find the show notes for today's episode, including links to some other useful blockchain resources at competitionlawlore.com. While you're there... If you haven't already, please take the really brief survey just to let me know how you're finding the podcast and to help me in choosing topics and guests you'll find most interesting. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton wells